0: This is Marketing Jam, a show featuring the brightest minds in marketing. Marketing Jam is brought to you by Cyber Impact, the email marketing platform made specifically for Canadian small businesses. Go to cyberimpact.com forward slash jelly, create a free account, and start sending Castle compliant promotional emails in just a few clicks.
1: Here's your host, Darian Kovac. I want to welcome you to the Marketing Jam show. We have a very special guest today. We have Sean here from the Globe and Mail. He works in the Globe Content Studio. So I'm really excited to be talking with someone who is literally the personification of a print publication, doing stuff digitally, becoming a content uh, marketing space and content marketing studio. And what does that actually mean? What does that mean for the Globe and Mail? What does it mean for the print edition? What does it mean for all things digital? And and yeah. as well, Sean is an entrepreneur. Uh, he runs the uh, entrepreneurship uh, group right in Toronto. He 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 knows what entrepreneurs are all about, and so we're really excited to hear from those uh, two things. So, Sean, uh, why don't you give us your origin story? How did you end up in the chair you are today, and kind of what 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 were the kind of the stories along the way that brought you there?
0: Sure. Um, so my background is in journalism. Um, Although, even before that, um, when I did my first university degree, it was in economics. Mm -hmm. So, I do have a business background as well and a journalism degree. And um, as I was going through economics, I started to realize that business wasn't necessarily the first thing that I wanted to jump into from a career standpoint. So, I had a roommate at the time who was writing for the school newspaper Mm. at the University of Western Ontario. And he said, you know, you're a creative guy, you should maybe come with me to the newspaper office sometime and see if it's something you'd be interested in doing. So I went and, you know, was kind of immediately struck by the camaraderie in the newsroom there, by the, um, the conversations that were happening there, by the type of work that they were doing. I felt kind of right at home almost immediately sure. and just started writing stories for them. And then uh, became the features editor of the paper the following year and got a taste for editing uh, in addition to reporting and realized as I was finishing my economics degree that you know, journalism was really the, the place that I wanted to be from a career standpoint. Mm-hmm. So I went to Ryerson and, and got a journalism degree here in Toronto, uh, did a two-year program, and then uh, got an internship at the Globe and Mail. And I think actually, even though the economics degree wasn't all that exciting to me at the time that I was doing it, because I had the combination of economics and journalism, uh, it actually helped me land a job at the report on business section at the golden Mail because, mm. you know, at the time, it was a lot less common to have both a business mm. degree and a journalism degree. So I think that yeah. actually really helped me get a foot in the door at the end of the day. So sometimes, you know, karma is karma, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, funny enough, the I'm not all that excited about business you know, kicked in a few years later and I was like, you know, I'd really like to do something different topically. And the National Post was starting up at the time. And so there was a lot of movement of, um, you know, personnel from paper to paper. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the Toronto Star made me an offer to come and work at the uh, entertainment department there. And I'm like, entertainment, man. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's more like it. Right. Yeah. Let's do that. Uh, So, uh, I did a stint as uh, the the Deputy Entertainment Editor, did a couple of other jobs at the Star while I was there for a few years, and then uh, The Globe uh, brought me back to work in the National Department Mm -hmm. as an editor, and I've been here since that time. But in terms of trajectory into my current position, which is Mm -hmm. more of a content marketing role, Um, This is where the sort of entrepreneurship side starts to come in because a a few years into my tenure here at the Globe, I started picking up more digital skills and um, what I really wanted to do was start building something. So here we're coming full circle where I was trying to get out of the business side and now all of a sudden that business itch started and so I was looking for a way to, um, you know, use the business skills and the content skills together. Mm -hmm. So the editor-in-chief at the time said, listen, we've got this uh, product we call Report on Small Business. Mm -hmm. It's a magazine that's Mm -hmm. uh, once a month, it's intended for business owners. But we really need to transition it to a digital property Mm -hmm. because all the companies that want to sponsor storytelling around entrepreneurs are more interested in the digital space than they are Mm -hmm. in the print product. So we want to kind of sunset print and really Mm -hmm. move into digital. So that really required a full rebuild of the property almost from the ground up. So I rebranded it, um, started up social channels and really turned it into a fully digital property and sunset the magazine property Mm -hmm. at that time and really started to build a community in in addition to the content that I was building out. And I learned two things from entrepreneurs at that point. One was, uh, you know, think bigger, right? Mm -hmm. Don't be satisfied with Mm -hmm. what you've got think about the other things that you can do on top of what you're already doing so always think about what your next steps are and how you can get there and secondly was um, you know how do you uh, use your um, skill set to make money right mm. um, you know so what I was doing was was more uh, journalistic based at the time but I was thinking okay um, I need to start doing some business development with this property and so what I learned, was the church and state separation between editorial and advertising worked really well for a really long time. But because I was operating a smaller property, I really needed money in order to do more of the things that I thought I should be doing, like running events, like creating more content, which required more freelance dollars. Mm -hmm. So I started making the leap into advertising to say, how can I get more advertisers to sponsor more of the content that I'm creating, then I get more dollars to start doing business development around the property. Mm. So I was crossing the floor that really to that point hadn't gotten crossed Mm -hmm. very often.
1: Mm. And what year was this?
0: When was this? This would have been 2007 probably, 2008. Um, so maybe ten years ago or so. Mm-hmm. And you know, then I would work with the advertising department mm-hmm. to come up with ideas that we thought people would want to sponsor. Yeah. And then once we got those sponsorship dollars, we would you know be able to actually make those things happen. Yeah. So I started thinking differently about journalism and the contributions that I can make, because maybe the contributions I can make can go beyond content and into the realm of actually helping the company the organization make money to help fund the journalism so then the publisher at the time said you know listen we could um, start experimenting with a product manager role for you Mm. so I took a few properties including the small business property under my wing as a product manager and started packaging up the content that we were creating and taking that out to advertisers to sponsors. so kind of taking the small business framework and starting to build it out for more than just the small business Mm. property looking at things like automotive and careers and real estate. And then uh, after doing that for about a year, I found it was not as engaging and interesting as I would have liked. And so I moved in to my current role about three years ago, where I was just sort of overseeing the content marketing division here. And I've really been changing it and and building it Mm -hmm. uh, ever since. So again, still overseeing content, and some editorial content as well as sponsor content, but bolting on things like, you know, audio uh, concepts and podcasts, uh, you know, doing more in the realm of like 360 video, um, starting to experiment with things like AR, um, raising our design game, doing more around data analytics and how do data um, and analytics uh, get optimized to help inform your content, Um, working in the innovation lab here and uh, co-chairing, that particular part of the business and then thinking about how I can use some of those innovative products mm-hmm. as part of my content marketing work and um, really kind of stretching um, the uh, boundaries, I guess, of what it means to be a journalist and a content creator mm-hmm. and getting into business development, as I've mentioned, and sales support and you know, looking at things like uh, social media and paid social versus just organic. Um, And really like taking a look at the suite of marketing and marketing technology tools and how I can use those tools and put them together with the great journalism and then add in um, You know my work with sales teams and Create a division um, That is unlike anything we've had here in the past. So that's I don't know if that's a short or a long version of the journey, but that's the journey That's amazing use the term sponsored content
1: a lot. And we we hear the terms uh, thrown around uh, advertorial, um, you know, partnership content. Uh, Tell me about the the usages of those terms and how you guys came to sponsored content.
0: Sure. So advertorial has been a dirty word for decades, Mm -hmm. as I'm Mm -hmm. sure you're aware. Mm -hmm. And I think there was good reason for it. Mm -hmm. Because if you'll pardon my French, most advertorials were shit, right? Mm -hmm. They were um, content that was produced really quickly, um, yeah. felt very much like advertising and not content, mm-hmm. um, mostly ignored mm-hmm. by an audience, um, and just not not given the attention mm-hmm. that would have made it better and, and smarter. Mm-hmm. Um, when I came into this role, uh, the first thing I decided that I wanted to do was harmonize the quality of the content across the board. Mm-hmm. So how do we bring editorial principles and apply those to all the content produced by the studio and, and by our content marketing operation. So how do we um, you know, make sure that everything that our audience is consuming from a content perspective that's created by my team looks and feels from a quality perspective like anything that we'd be producing in the newsroom. So that was number one. And then number two, we had to start thinking about terms. Um, you have to label everything mm-hmm. at the Globe and Mail because if we're going to be you know, trusted by our readers and we're going to be transparent, we yeah. need to label things. Yeah. Um, we don't label our editorial content, nope. um, but in, in my group, editorial content is really just an adjacency play for advertisers, so what they're buying is the media that runs next to certain types of content, so they're buying contextual uh, alignment of their ads next mm-hmm. to the content that my team is creating, but the content we're creating is being created without the advertiser input. But then we needed a label for content that had integration and and had advertiser approval. And because advertorial was a bit of a dirty word, we landed on the use of sponsor content to denote the native advertising work that we do, which is kind of a cross between advertorial and editorial, the advertorial work that we do without calling it advertorial and putting a different kind of spin on it. Uh, And then at the bottom of that sponsor content storytelling, we have a disclaimer that says the content was produced by the studio and not by the newsroom. So we're being open and transparent with our audience, but we're also trying to make sure that we're creating content that is actually quality, that people want to spend time with. So we really aim not just to roll up a lot of page views for that content, but also make sure that we have high engagement levels with it as well, high active time spent on it, whether it's a video or it's a podcast or whether it's you know text and photo. Um, yeah. The aim is to get people to spend as much time with it as possible.
1: So if I'm a, you know, a 30-something year old and I've, you know, I've, I've got a house I'm renting or I've, I've bought a house and I'm like, man, I'm an adult now, I'm gonna start subscribing to a newspaper and I don't wanna just get my provincial newspaper or my local, I wanna get a national paper. How would you describe the difference between someone who should order, subscribe to the Globe and Mail versus someone who should subscribe to the National Post? What type of people are they and, and, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, listen, you've got to make decisions based on what you want as a consumer, Mm. right? So why would somebody get a Spotify subscription over an Apple Music subscription, right? It's a great, yeah. Some people will have both because they're getting the service that they want uh, uniquely From each of those two platforms. So really, it's like any other business. It's all about value proposition. So what's the Globe and Mail's value proposition to the market? Well, for the most part, you're going to start with politics and business. If you're a political junkie or you're a business junkie, um, you know the Globe and Mail is going to be a great value proposition for you. Those are Mm -hmm. two areas of strength. That said, we also have a strong arts department, and we also have a sports department, and we also have Uh, lifestyle department. So we do offer other things in addition to our core offerings, but it's really those core offerings that I think are going to attract the biggest audience for us. Um, So you've got to look at uh, the Globe and Mail and and the stories that it tells versus the stories that our competitors tell, whether it's the National Post uh, or the Toronto Star or the Vancouver Sun or any other media organization. Yeah. I think the, the way I like to frame the Globe and Mail these days is not as a newspaper anymore. You know, uh, it's interesting that people like you still think of us as a newspaper and you know, you're, you're not alone in that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The Newspaper is a, is a Globe and Mail product, yeah. but it doesn't really define us. Like I think of the Globe and Mail as a media organization, a national media organization. So are we covering the things that you as a consumer of content want to know about? That's really what it comes down to. Are you interested in politics? Are you interested in business and investing? And um, are you interested in, um, you know, some of the other sort of investigative journalism that we might do? You know, you have to take a look at the opportunity to read some of our material for free and then make a decision based on your consumption of that material as to whether or not you want the all-you-can-eat buffet. Right. I mean, obviously, we have other benefits to our subscribers. Yep. Um, we have events that you can find out about exclusively, mm-hmm. and some of those are subscriber-only events. Um, you know, we, we have, um, you know, all kinds of opportunities for our audience to engage with us through the comments on our platform or through our mm-hmm. subscriber-only Facebook page. You know, yeah. there, there are, there are um, you know, entire pages on the website that are sort of dedicated to member services and the things mm-hmm. that you get you know, as a Globe and Mail subscriber. You know, we're in the business of providing information to people yeah. and getting them to have a better understanding of the country and how it works and how, um, you know, information uh, can be conveyed to them in ways that will make them have a greater appreciation for Canada as a place to live and, and a place to, to work, right? Um, so if a person has a sense that we're providing something to them that meets all of those objectives, Mm -hmm. then we're valuable and we're worth subscribing to. And that's really what we try to double down on. And that's the sell that we give to our advertisers as well Is listen, we've got this audience that appreciates the material that we're creating and is willing to pay money for that. Mm -hmm. And that's an audience that you probably want to reach as an advertiser, because we can, you know, tell you more about that audience than you would otherwise know if you were you know, going with a provider that didn't have a paying audience. So is that
1: pro- why you guys have gated content online? Like, I'll read something in print, and then I'll look for it online to send to someone, but sometimes it'll actually say, you must pay to see this, pay to play.
0: Yeah. It, so that's part uh, of the model. The reason for that is that content costs money. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, a lot of my colleagues like to give the analogy of you wouldn't walk into a store and take something off the shelf and walk out just because it was there, right? Same reason um, why you pay for journalism, because journalism costs money, right? We have reporters that we need to pay, we have editors that we need to pay, we have people in production and advertising, and we you know, have an events business to support. I mean, we have all kinds of things that we have to pay for, and we need our audience to pay us in order to deliver them the information that we're providing that costs money so we're like any other business providing a product Mm -hmm. or service there's money that goes into it and then we need to get money out of our customers in order to continue to put money into it it's like anything else it's a slippery slope right once your business is starved of revenue you Mm -hmm. can't provide the same level of service so the more subscribers we have the better Mm -hmm. journalism we're able to provide to that audience mm-hmm. and the better service we're able to provide to the country. I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking about a media organization like the Globe and Mail as being like a library, right? Mm. Like we provide information and you should just be able to come in and get that information. Yeah, you've been it's around for 175
1: years, you're like one of the forts in like Fort Langley here. We have a fort. You've just been here always, like Hudson's Bay. Right, right. Yeah.
0: Like, like people will contact me and say, hey, I need some research on X or Y. Uh, When can you get it to me? As though I'm here as a public service. Um, And I think that's that's part of the issue. Another part of it, of course, is that we conditioned people to be able to get our information for free for a long time. Because we still had a viable newspaper product at the time that was able to support our ability to give information away for free digitally. In hindsight, that was probably a mistake on our part. But we just didn't know better at the time because things were moving really fast. Yeah. You know, we we're trying to move as quickly as we could. And so we were going to make some mistakes along the way. That's just oh, yeah. part of doing business, right? Um, you pick yourself up and you, you move forward in, in new and different ways by responding mm-hmm. to the market and by responding to your customers, which we've done. Um, and then I think people forget that our newspaper product wasn't free yeah. and still isn't, right? Mm-hmm. So even before digital disruption, we provided a product that cost money and we charged for it. Mm which yeah. is what we're still continuing to do today. To me it doesn't really matter what form the information takes mm-hmm. it still has always had value and and we're just in some ways going back to the future by saying that value continues to exist and we're starting to see some success as a result of that. You know the message is awesome. starting to get through and I think people recognize that politics is complicated that yeah. business is complicated yeah. that Telling great stories that require more than just a cursory glance at things that are going on in the world is complicated and time-consuming, and that if you want that, it's going to cost you, but you're going to get a benefit out of it in that you're going to
1: know more about the world around you. So you mean I can't understand the entire Canadian, you know, political landscape uh, by just reading a listicle? Mm. Okay.
0: Well. No doubt. Um, I'll let that. I'm letting that hang because I think you know the answer. Um, but <laughs> no, I, I do, I do think that people feel that information is somehow just going to come to them magically yeah. through their social yeah. feeds. Yeah. But what they don't realize is if they were to take a look at the information that's being delivered to yeah. them in their social feeds, it's most likely coming from a media outlet. Yeah. Either because they're attaching it and sharing it, or because mm-hmm. the information that they are sharing. Is coming from another source and, and generally a media source if it has something to do with what's going on in the world.
1: Yeah. So you talked about uh, the innovation lab so th- our viewers that are watching um, and Mail recently you moved into a new building you've got an innovation lab there T- tell us about what that is and what does that mean for for Canada and what does that mean for journalism today
0: and media so, I guess today. Yeah I mean again that was I think a result of us having more touch points with the entrepreneurial community and not just business owners, but incubators like a Communitech or a Mars, um, you know, or an innovation center in any, you know, major city across the country or even now in small centers and recognizing that people are busy and innovation doesn't just come from you when you're doing your day-to-day job, not because you don't have ideas, but because you don't have an outlet or Mm -hmm. the time to take those ideas and develop them. So I think one of the things the globe recognized was that there are 700 people that work for the Globe and Mail. Mm -hmm. A lot of them had great ideas and they would Mm -hmm. try to bubble those ideas up, but they never really had a platform to Mm -hmm. build them. And oftentimes someone might say to them, this is a great idea. You should do something with this. But then there was no champion for those Mm -hmm. ideas. Yeah. So... I like to use the phrase dustbins of history. And Mm. I imagine thousands of great ideas have been incubated in this organization over its 175-year history that are sitting in the dustbins of history because they just never had the opportunity or the support to do anything with them. So we created a space, literally and figuratively, where people could take those ideas and actually do something with them. So conceptually speaking, there are kind of two parts to the program. One is a two-day innovation um, kind of teaching exercise where people can walk away from their day job for two days and learn from experts on how to take an idea and figure out whether or not it has business merit. Mm -hmm. So getting a little bit of money to spend, uh, getting access to experts both inside and outside the building, um, and taking some time, not just in those two days, but as part of their jobs for a few months after that um, because there are check-ins to make sure they're continuing to do it to try to figure out whether or not there's a value proposition that's going to have any currency in the market. Mm -hmm. The second part of the program is the ability to pitch to an executive team um, an idea where it's a little bit bigger and more ambitious Mm -hmm. and might require, say, the help of people on our dev team Mm -hmm. or our data science team to build where they're saying, if I can come out of my job for three months and work in a lab-like environment with these mm-hmm. other teams around the building, here's the thing that I want to do. Wow. And then more funding is provided if the idea gets accepted, and we try to, you know, kind of take two ideas at a time at least every six months and sometimes every quarter um, to give people that opportunity that they didn't have before, which is to, you know, actually get the time and the support to build out ideas instead of just consigning them to the dustbins of history. So the challenge, of course, is keeping something like that sustainable yeah. um, because of the resources that are required and the commitments that are required. So we're, we're at a period now where we've been running the lab for about four years and we're kind of evaluating all the projects that have been through it um, trying to see what the end result was with those products And making a determination as to what the lab should be going forward do we continue on the current course do we need to make some adjustments because I think like anything else like any other business model you need to you know do an examination every once in a while to see if things need to be changed or adjusted and that's kind of the period that we're in now and I think in the next sort of month or two we'll have a better sense going forward of how we plan to continue operating it very cool so
1: those that are um, our viewers that are in PR, public relations, and what sort of advice would you give someone who's pitching you? You know, being in the position you're in. You know, those that are listening to the show are like, Hi, you know, I've always wanted to hear from Sean. This is I can see him now. And w- w- what pitches do you love? What advice would you give And What are, What are like the worst pitches that someone could do? Maybe, you, or maybe you just want to uh-huh. stay positive and not go negative. But yeah,
0: well, we can, we can go either way. I think the biggest mistake that people make when they're pitching yeah. is that just pitching something makes it interesting. In other words, they don't reflect on why they're pitching hmm. and what the value is of the story they're trying to pitch. As an example, I get a lot of PR pitches where I'll read like the first three paragraphs okay. and I'm lost as to why this person's even writing to me. Yeah, The reason I keep going is that oftentimes the real story is like four or five paragraphs in to the pitch because hmm. they spend so much time saying this is an awesome company they're making a ton of money they're doing really great things it's not a pitch that's like what every company aims hmm. to do and what you know a million companies across canada for potentially are doing it's about finding the thing that you're doing that maybe has some news value or maybe is exclusive you know maybe there's like a big funding announcement for example or maybe there's um, a partnership with a big partner or a government body that's going to be announced. Um, you know, you got to give the Golden Mail a reason to get excited about something. Mm-hmm. We like things that are exclusive to us, like mm-hmm. come to us mm-hmm. first with something. We like things that have news value and we like things that are trendworthy in mm-hmm. some way that speak to something that's going on that people we know are interested in because there's data out there around it or social listening around it. You know, so it's about doing your research and and getting a sense of what it is the globe's audience would be interested in vis-a-vis the thing that you're pitching. So I use companies just as as an example, but it could be anything that's lifestyle related or sports related or whatever, same same applications. And then I think the other thing you have to consider is who am I pitching this to, right? The newsroom's got 200, 250 people, editors, reporters, Mm -hmm. right? You've got to target your pitch. You've got to mm-hmm. show an understanding of the organization, um, you know, and show that you're actually consuming the information that the organization is producing. So if your pitch is arts-related, well, who's the arts editor in the department that this is most likely going to be of interest to? Who's the reporter that is most likely going to be writing about the thing that you're trying to pitch? You want to go to those people directly if you can. Because if you just do a blast, which is very typical for PR or communications companies, you know they're like, well, who did this go to other than me? Yeah. Who else is getting this pitch, right? Why isn't this just being targeted to me directly? The stuff that's directly targeted where you're like, hey, so-and-so at the Globe and Mail, love the work you did on X, yeah. Y, or Z. I know this is right in your wheelhouse. I've got something I want to tell you about, and I'm going to do it in like two sentences because I know you don't have a ton of time. And if you can sell them in two sentences, you know you've got a good idea. It's going to take you five paragraphs to do it. It's probably not a great idea. It's probably one of those amorphous, you know, kind of broad-based concepts that is really more of a, I just need something to pitch on behalf of my client as opposed to I actually have something to pitch that's of value.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the Golden Mail, you publish op-eds, um, people's opinions done in editorial fashion. How do you know when it's a good op-ed or a bad one? What would you give as advice that way? You know, outside of the pitches, but someone gives you a, a, an article and a platter. When do you say yeah. no and when do you say yes?
0: So op-eds live and die on the news, right? Yeah. So first and foremost, you want to write something that's literally off of a news story that's in that newspaper that you just held up, yeah. right? Like what is going on in the world right now yeah. that I know a lot about and I can add value to? Cool. That's always going to be the most important thing you can do. Uh, Secondly, it's not about you. Uh, It's about what you know. So uh, you don't want to insert yourself or your business or the company you work for into your op-ed, unless it's super relevant to the conversation because you're literally part of the news cycle um, or that organization is part of the news cycle, right? So if you're, you know, a business that's in the news uh, and you want to kind of show your side of the story or or talk about your side of the story or your take on the story, then it makes sense to insert yourself. But if it's just a commentary on something that's going on in the news, then it's really more about what you know, as opposed to what you do or or who you work for. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing to, to consider is, you know, what's your, what's your argument? What are you adding to the conversation that's new and different? Are you just reinforcing what's already out there or do you have a perspective that's unique? in some way that's going to provide value because it's not something that we've heard about before but it's still relevant to the conversation.
1: Very cool, It's very helpful. Thanks, Sean. We're gonna switch gears here a little bit. Uh, with your experience with entrepreneurs, um, entrepreneurs that are out there, that are listening to the show, they have a lot of options. They, they get recruited to Tech, McKay Forum, EO, YPO, like what's your advice? How do they navigate that landscape and even your own organization that you've started your own, you know, entrepreneurship society. How would you help an entrepreneur navigate that world with someone I feel like as a more agnostic perspective on the landscape, how do you distinguish between all these orgs you could join and, and what should they join and why should they?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a classic question, right? Like I get asked all the time by startups, like should I join an incubator or an accelerator? And that's a really tough question to answer. I mean, they they provide fantastic support, but the thing you have to remember is they're geared towards the pitch process and at the end of the day, helping you make money. Now, don't get me wrong, funding's insanely important to a startup and everybody needs it um, because not everybody can bootstrap. I mean, I'm a fan of bootstrapping, but I recognize the difficulties of it. Um, and and the drain that it can be Mm -hmm. um, from a stress perspective, from a lifestyle perspective, uh, from a friends and family perspective, and the pressures that you can be under when you're doing that. Um, But you really need to understand that, um, you know, it's gonna take away from your opportunity to build your business, Mm -hmm. which first and foremost is the most important thing. You know, I I think a lot of business owners feel like they need to do a lot of marketing Mm -hmm. and a lot of pitching in the early stages. You know, if if I'm going to, you know, try to give some real world advice, it's very much about just putting your head down and building Mm. the right team and just getting your product and service in market and having that minimum viable product or MVP out there and then really starting to get a sense of, okay, do people actually want this? Yeah, I think that's first and foremost, your biggest issue. You know, we talk about giving away content for free. A lot of startups will give their product away for free okay. as a way to test it. But that's a really difficult thing to do because a business doesn't live and die on something that you're giving away. A mm-hmm. business lives and dies on people being um, you know, actually in the market to pay for that product mm-hmm. or service that you've created. So to me, that's the thing that you need to be doing in the early stages. Now, if you really are in tech And just getting a product out there for people to test and try and you're, you know, really thinking more about a freemium model, you know, you're going to start by just building something out that you're just going to put out in the market and see what kind of audience there is out there for it. Then I think the incubator or accelerator model could be really good for you because it really is all about marketing. It really is all about like having a pitch deck and rolling up some you know, funding dollars, because without them, you're, you're done because you're not actually charging for anything yet. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really, you know, being real with yourself as an entrepreneur and thinking is the most important thing for me to get something in market to see if people are willing to pay for it, in which case, I'd say, just keep doing your thing. And, you know, don't worry so much about the networking and the incubator accelerator model, or are you someone who's just trying to find the broadest audience possible? And then you're going to make money off that audience once you've secured them. And then I think that incubator accelerator funding model, pitching model is, is probably the right one for you.
1: So are you a uh, Android iPhone or Blackberry guy? Uh, Android. Android. Okay. Now, are you a whiskey or wine guy?
0: (laughs) Both. Okay. Okay. Actually, I'm, I'm, I, I, my primary, uh, alcohol preference is beer. Okay. Uh, I love the craft beer movement because yep, I can yep. go into just about any bar these days, and there's like you know, eighteen to fifty beers that I can try, many of which I'll never have tried before. So that's yep. you know number one for me. But you know, I certainly like a nice glass of red wine when I can get it, and you know, whiskey's sort of a nice thing to have after dinner type of thing. So um, nice. you know, I'm not picky.
1: Have you tried the vodka soda movement yet? That's been happening. It came out this last summer.
0: No. I've actually been more of an old-fashioned movement kind of guy that's like still the number one bar drink out there And I was never really that into them like i would never really had them all that often before But for some reason recently in my social feeds I've seen a lot of references to like the old-fashioned still being the number one drink of choice So I've I've had a couple of those lately and been enjoying them
1: Uh, Tim Hortons or Starbucks?
0: <laughs> uh, I'm more of an independent coffee shop guy. Yeah. But, nice. you know, sometimes, sometimes caffeine is caffeine and I'll, I'll just go to whatever's closest. Okay. Air Canada, WestJet. Um, cheapest price. Yeah. yeah. To be honest. Okay. You know, like yeah. I, I'm, I'm fine with either one. Uh, and and yeah. generally, it, it's, it's about price and where I need to go.
1: So, Sean, on your Android, what, what are the go-to apps that you use on a daily basis? What are the ones that you can't live without?
0: Yeah. So I'm, a, listen, I'm a news junkie, right? Yeah. So the primary yes. apps that I'm using are uh, Twitter, yeah. um, Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I use, uh, I look at Snapchat and Snapchat yeah. Discover. So I'm not sort of active as a user on well, Snapchat, yeah. but I'm certainly but, looking at the platform and the things that are being you're created on there.
1: You're swiping um,
0: Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Instagram, obviously a uh, big deal for me. And then uh, I check um, Coin a lot because I like to see where my crypto is moving just yeah. cause that's, you know, um, always, uh, kind of up and down on, on a dime and, you know, yeah. like every minute counts almost in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, I'd say, you know, I use my device to check email just cause, mm-hmm. um, you know, I get a high volume of it and there's just so much going on in my line of work, mm-hmm. you know, and clients tend to connect with me through there in addition to the people yeah. that I work with and then Slack. You know, yeah. like Slack for me is just a great comms channel, and not yeah. just for the Globe, yeah. um, but for you know, like the Elite Marketers Association yeah. that I'm part yeah. of, or the Fireside Conference Group that I'm part yeah. of. So, you know, I'm finding there there are a lot of ways to connect with people now on Slack um, that I don't think I was using um, in that manner even like six months ago. So I do yeah. find I'm I'm getting in there more often and looking at conversations on the different channels that I've joined. That's really cool.
1: Have you have you interviewed or met Stuart yet? The creator of slack
0: uh no oh yes actually i shouldn't say that i met stuart years ago he came into the globe and i did a yep. video interview in our studio here so this was even before slack this was, was when this he was still doing Flickr? Yeah, yeah yeah come on Flickr. Uh, yeah man yeah so i think you know it was it was years ago so either slack was just launching or it had yet to launch And I just brought him in because I was still running the Small Business Channel, and he was, you know, just a great entrepreneur. And so we just kind of talked about him and his his entrepreneurial um, movement uh, and businesses. And, uh, you know, we talked um, a lot about what his plans were for the future, uh, probably more around photography than anything else. Um, But I've kept in touch with him over the years and tried to get him to come back to the globe now that... Slack is such a big deal to do conference and stuff like that. And he's great. He always responds to me. And we just haven't had a chance to make it work yet. But I will keep trying and I will land him eventually. So I will see him again, I'm sure. Okay.
1: So, um, Sean, I need to ask. Um, it, it's ironic because you are a, you know, you're coming from the newspaper. But I want to know what sort of books, magazines, and podcasts that you consume and that you'd recommend to others that are watching the show.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so books, I'm a fiction guy. Um, uh, but I do read some nonfiction as well. So I'm, I'm reading both a fiction and a nonfiction book at the moment. Uh, the fiction book is called The Paying Guests. It's mm-hmm. by uh, an author named Sarah Waters. Uh, nice. It's long. Um, mm-hmm. So it's one of those sort of bedside books that I'll probably have next to the bedside for about two months. Um, but it's a, a cool little yarn about um, a woman who's in her 20s in the 1920s and how her family comes on some hard times and they have this big old house and they need to take in some uh you know paying guests um, yeah. um tenants for a period of time and it's all about her interaction um, mm. with this married couple that moves into the house so pretty cool book and, and i'd recommend it i'm about a third of the way through it and on the non-fiction side uh i'm reading a book actually by one of my colleagues her name's ann hui h-u-i and it's called chop suey nation and okay. so Anne grew up in vancouver yeah. she learned about her family history and around uh, I don't want to give too much away but around um, you know some entrepreneurial ventures by her parents before she was born and she wraps that in with a tour that she did hmm. from coast to coast so west to east yep. starting in Victoria and ending in Newfoundland um, and uh, visiting all the Chinese restaurants um, wow. that were in you know, big and small towns along the way, yeah. and not just writing about the food and its history yeah. and the Chinese yeah. uh, Canadian cuisine history, yeah. um, but also about the owners of those businesses and the conversations wow. that she had with them along the way. It's a really great read. It's cool. Um, cool. Podcast. Then- yeah, podcast. So I listened to The Daily, uh, which is the yeah. New York Times podcast. Yeah. I know lots of people love that one. Um, I listened to Startup um you know which is you know of course of interest to anyone in the entrepreneurial community and now i'm actually producing podcasts so that's actually sort of taking up a lot of my audio time so we just um, wrapped three podcasts which are all now in market one was a retirement podcast hosted by uh, rob carrick who's one of our writers called looking ahead we had another one that i'm hosting called industry interrupted that's all about big industries that are um, continuing to be disrupted that was a seven-part series and then we also did one called I'll Go First, which is all about entrepreneurs that are starting companies in brand new industries. Wow. So industries cool. like cryptocurrency, AI, robotics, yeah. you know, machine learning. Um, so that was hosted by a woman named Takara Small. So I've been kind of deeply embedded in just you know, getting those recorded and, and off the ground and uh, obviously edited and in-market and, and distributed and promoted and all those good things um and then um what else did you want to know about books oh magazines magazines um right. mm-hmm. uh, yeah so I read ink and fast company because yeah. I like design and small business obviously I read entertainment weekly because I yeah. like to keep up in in the pop culture world because you know that's obviously important um yeah. I read the economists of course because that's nice deep dive stuff mm. um when it comes to the news and, and analysis and I think one of the big values that print still has is it gives you opportunity to reflect. So I think the reason you like your Saturday newspaper is yeah. it gives you time to be away from your screen and really just yeah. kind of look and think about the content that you're seeing in front of you. And, and it gives you a little bit more time and a bit more headspace to consume it. And I find something like The Economist is a pretty valuable way to be able to do that.
1: Awesome. So um, looking ahead for this year, we've got a lot of brands and, and agencies listening to the show and watching the show, what are you seeing as the trends coming up for content marketing?
0: So the thing that I'm most interested in right now um, is what's going on in the browser space. So have you downloaded the Brave browser? No, no. So the Brave browser was built, created by the former CEO of Mozilla. So Brave is a uh, blockchain-based browser. So it has a built-in ad blocker. Now that's not great news for a content marketer, but at the same time you can't ignore the forces that are going on around you. So yeah. it's got a small user base at the moment, but what's interesting about it is the way the product is going to evolve. So it's a token based system. Mm-hmm. You can earn tokens uh, and then you can spend those tokens by you know kind of rewarding, the websites or the organizations that you want to reward with these tokens, so they're they're like basic attention tokens. So I think what we might see in the future is the ability for you as a user or a consumer to say, um, "I'm willing to watch an ad by company mm-hmm. X," and then you get rewarded with tokens for viewing those ads. So what like does that karma mean on that means, Reddit? Yeah, that yeah. means that as an advertiser or a content marketer, you're going to want to be creating stuff that people actually want to consume because they're going to have to watch it all the way through to get their reward. So it's going to change, I think, the way that that content marketing is created and marketed. Right? Not Mm -hmm. in the near term, but certainly something we all need to think about as marketers Mm -hmm. and how we're going to respond to a scenario like that if it starts to get more popular. And then an organization like the Global Mail is going to have to think, well, how do I get people to reward us with these tokens that they're earning? Well, that's going to be by giving them great journalism that they you know, may want to reward with tokens when, say, they read a story that they really liked or really valued. So that's number one. Uh, number two, I think you need to keep an eye on AR. And it's mm. not like AR isn't out there. But right now, mm. really great AR really requires the use of an app to get a great experience. Yeah. You know as well as I do that getting people to download apps to do just about anything is getting harder and harder. There's so many of them out there. They take up space on yeah. your phone. You know, yeah. people really only use probably about a third of the apps on a regular basis that are actually already installed on their phones. So I think once we have, um, you know, a mobile web-enabled great AR experiences, AR is really going to take off. And I think it's actually going to overtake VR as the sort of hot new marketing format. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we're always looking at. And then I think design is insanely important. You know, the reason I like magazines like Fast Company is because they package content with great design, right? Quartz does that as well, Um, you know, when you go to specific sites, the way that you engage with those sites is gonna be based on how good the package is, um, that, you know, is kind of hosting that content. So when content looks great, you're going to spend more time with it. So even on my team, we've sort of doubled down by hiring um, a pair of designers who do really great work for us and make the content look really great so that it's not just great content, but it's a great package as well. And I think from an attention standpoint, that's going to become increasingly important. It's already important. Wow.
1: Sean, you've had so many incredible nuggets on this show. I really appreciate your time uh and again this is not sponsored content i i, I do subscribe to the globe uh both Bam. at our office and and saturday mornings my wife and i for the last you know since we were married have been spending saturday mornings reading the globe so but i pay for it myself so just so it's clear uh it. <laughs> i am i'm am speaking and and just you know i wore these special cufflinks just for you they're, they're little wow. miniature globes That's yeah nice. just for you just for you uh sean Um, I want to thank you again. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for joined us today. Thanks for listening to Marketing Jam. If you enjoyed the show, head over to our YouTube or Facebook and give us a thumbs up and visit iTunes to leave a rating and review. Thanks again, and see you next time.
0: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes